Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my usual co-commenter, Cameron Brooks, is currently reading a book on a beach somewhere in Florida right now, while I pretend that he really wishes he could be here. In the meantime, though, I'm joined in the studio by my friend Delta David Geyer, the music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra and a member of Grace. Last year, the prominent music critic for The New Yorker magazine, Alex Ross, described the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra under David's leadership as one of America's boldest orchestras. This accolade came on the heels of David receiving Columbia University's prestigious Ditson Conductors Award. He's getting ready to conduct Shostakovich's Symphony No. 7, the so-called Leningrad Symphony, for a performance next week on February 25th. Back in 2020... David and I worked together on a podcast called Hearing the Music, which was broadcast on public radio, and right now we're working on a second season. So I thought it would be a great time to talk to David about faith, music, and the work he's done recently to launch Crescendo North America, a professional organization for Christian professionals in music. Well, David, I am grateful to you for taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule and and out of our project, working on our second season of Hearing the Music, to talk a little bit with our commentary listeners about your background in conducting, uh, how you got into that, what it means to be a Christian in the conducting world. And eventually, I'd also like to talk about your work with Crescendo North America, which I know is something that is uh, relatively new, but very exciting. And I'd like people to know more about what's going on. But, but first, let me just ask, because it's such an unusual thing. Most people, I think, uh, don't know any conductors. Uh, how did you first find yourself on this path that, that led you to conducting a symphony? Well, it's a it's kind of a long circuitous route. I mean, I've you know I always had music in my life. My mother had me in music kindergarten when I was three years old, singing in children's choirs. When when I was four years old, it, you know, both my parents were amateur musicians, and my father played half a dozen instruments really badly. <laughs> Gave me my first trumpet lessons, for which I suffered my entire trumpet playing career. Um, but uh, but I grew up with this love of music around me, and uh, it was something that was very natural uh, just to, to grow into. And yes, I thought I went to college thinking I was going to be a trumpet player. Um, and they're just through the course of things, through the course of my studies, I'd taken a conducting class, and it was it, it just became like the most natural thing for me. And conducting is a, it's kind of a, a large view kind of profession. You know, if you think of, you know, being a, an orchestral musician, like you're, you're in the weeds, right? You've got your, your part and you're playing your part and uh, conductors got to know everything. And, and that's, I don't know, it's just something that really a, appealed to me and, and I love it, you know, I mean, it's, and now I'm a professional conductor and, I mean, it's. I suppose it's kind of hard for a lot of people to imagine that you spend most of your time alone in a chair with a book in your lap, 
And uh, I mean, I view it as communing with genius every day. Sure. But, you sure. know, it's just like a beautiful thing. Like, you know, I had just had Beethoven in my lap all day today and it's like nothing better, but you know, I guess most people would think that might be kind of boring. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued by your description of the difference between being a performer versus being a conductor because yeah. you have a, a, an overall view of things. You're kind of, uh, if you'll forgive me, orchestrating mm. the the concert, and it strikes me that 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 is a lot like a novelist in the sense mm. that you have the the whole of the work, and mm-hmm. you are kind of in control of that work. But the big difference, of course, is that as a novelist, I'm just making stuff up, you know, and I can I can kind of create that world. But as a conductor, you're in control, but you're also channeling a world that's already been made by the composer. Well, see, I would say that I am just a recreator hmm. and you are a creator. Yeah. Like Beethoven is, is the, is the creator and I'm a performing artist, which means <laughs> I'm a, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just participating in the recreation of a work of art, like an actor, you know, I mean, I, I would be an analogous, somewhat analogous to the director of a Shakespeare production mm-hmm. or something like that. But, um, but I'm also performing. So coming off of the Super Bowl yesterday, <laughs> I would say that I'm, I have to be both the coach and the quarterback. Mm. Yeah. Know? Like yeah. I have to have the grand plan. I have to impart the to my players, but yet I also have to call each play and 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 perform each play as it's happening. Right. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people are listening, hoping that we would offer some in, insight into the Super Bowl. Uh, well, I can't do. I can't help you there because the Eagles <laughs> lost, and that was just right out. Right. So. <laughs> I mean, there there is a kind of theological sense, though, in which we are all recreators. You know that that mm. every creative person is essentially using the raw material that that God already provided Mm. and configuring or reconfiguring those things in pursuit of some sense that it's meant to go together somehow. And, and, and so I I think there is still an analogy there because as a, a, as a storyteller, I often have a sense that it's, I I said earlier, I'm just making it up, but, but honestly, sometimes it, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like something is, is being inherited or channeled or well that's the that's the thing about art i mean the best art has an inevitability about it mm. like you, you know you hear a turn of phrase in mozart and it's like well, that could not happen any other way it's just like he you know it's just perfect don't touch it um and i i revel you know with beethoven in my lap or whoever yeah i just revel in the gifts that god has given to to these people yeah you know and and interestingly most of the music that we that we cherish was written by people who uh believe they were participating in something larger than themselves many of them were in fact christian like bach for instance but even coming through the 19th century uh, where that thread might have been lost by some of them, they all still believed in that they were participating in this grander project that art 
could, you know, really do good in society and lift society up and make us better people. And you hear that, you feel ennobled when you listen to a Beethoven symphony. It's like you just feel like I'm a better person for having experienced this. They had a sense that their work, their art, was a participation in something higher, mm -hmm. uh, what we might call like the sublime or, or beauty mm -hmm. with a capital B. And those are concepts maybe that for 21st century people, you know, we only ever say with air quotes because we're so skeptical about yeah, absolutely cynical, I would metaphysical say, yes. world, like yeah. cynical. Yeah. And, and yet you are working in a tradition where some of the greatest works were produced by people who weren't at all cynical about those things. And those same cynics can't be cynical when they're sitting in the concert hall listening to this music. I mean, I don't, I don't, I never hear anybody like, you know, sitting back saying, oh, that's a bunch of hullabaloo. Yeah. They're yeah. usually in awe because it's magnificent. Right. Yeah. No, awe is a, is a good word for it. Definitely. Um, so the Japanese conductor, great interpreter of, of Bach, uh, Masaki Suzuki, mm -hmm. Once said, and this surprised me, that he did not think that his Christian faith gave him any sort of advantage when it came to interpreting Bach. And I'm curious if you feel similarly, or if maybe you've had a different experience of that. You know, interestingly, we will be talking about Crescendo later, and, and Suzuki is a member of Crescendo, mm. and uh, he's given a lot of interviews for, for Crescendo over the years, but... Um, yeah, he's a magnificent, uh, interpreter of Bach and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by that. I mean, I don't know that I would say that it's an advantage mm -hmm. in interpreting Bach. I guess somebody could come at it purely analytically and say, well, Bach took this text and he brought the text to life in, in this way and sort of clinically, you know, show how musically, you know, Bach did that. But the... You know, I would say that the the personal emotional experience of, you know, connecting with God, um, believing in Jesus and and then seeing that text and 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 bringing it to life through box music, like there's I think there's a got to be an element of joy that we can bring to it as believers that uh, perhaps others may be somewhat at a disadvantage. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. I mean, definitely when you're looking at uh, pieces like the ones that, that we've looked at and hearing the music uh, in the Passions, because of the texts and, and the topic of Christ's crucifixion, I mean, clearly having insight into that event and being able to appreciate it not just as a, a beautiful story, but but as a beautiful reality, I think makes a, a huge difference. Mm. I, I, I suspect that the, the quote of his that I saw was thinking more in terms of, uh, forgive me, the music itself, mm -hmm. not, not, you know, w without the text mm. and, uh, and, and maybe that has to do with it. And yet, I, I wonder if that's a legitimate distinction in your mind, <clears throat> you know, to, to distinguish between uh, 
you know, music with words versus <laughs> music without words as if it's not conveying anything. You mm. know? Well, that's a, that's a big debate. I mean, uh, Stravinsky infamously said that music was incapable of, uh, incapable of expressing anything. Mm. Um, and those of us who are performing artists, I think by and large would disagree with that um, because we enter into it emotionally. Um, and we do feel like we're participating in something larger than ourselves. And, and we do feel like we're expressing something beyond ourselves. Um, the vast majority of us, I think. There's a German word, uh, Sehnsucht, uh, which is uh, roughly translates into a spiritual yearning. And this appears throughout uh, German poetry, literature, uh, music throughout the 19th century. Schumann, Brahms, Mahler, Strauss, all set that word in texts that they were, that they were, uh, um, setting to music. So, and when I talk about this, um, with words or no words in the, in the music we're performing, when I talk about this with the orchestra, there's an immediate resonance with the people with whom I'm working in this, this sense of like, yes, this music does in fact portray a spiritual yearning and we are identifying with it and we would love to communicate that with other people. Yeah, no, that makes sense. The uh, Brahms piece, Zanzuk, that you shared with me yeah. uh, years ago, I actually played for students without giving them the translation of the German text and then asked them based on simply what they heard, the sound of it, whether or not they could tell me what it was about. Mm. And they could, you know, mm-hmm. they they did surprisingly well in uh, in getting at it. In fact, I felt this is subjective, but their descriptions actually fit the meaning of the music a little better than the text itself did, huh. if that makes sense. That yeah. that that there were layers that they derived from the sound that. Uh, that the words would not have conveyed without the music. So well, that's Brahms. I mean, yeah. any of us who play Brahms regularly would say, yeah, yeah, that's right. He transcended the text. Even the text is sublime and Brahms went beyond it. Not, mm-hmm. not a surprise to those of us who are in that, in that world. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's one question whether or not Christian faith offers any advantages to a, a performer or interpreter of, of music. Um, I'm wondering about the other side, though, uh, challenges, disadvantages. Uh, for example, I know that when you're programming work, you're not just programming Christian music, quote unquote, and, and you're not just programming music that, that you agree with, quote unquote. Like you've, you've programmed stuff where I, I think you probably don't agree with the message of the work, but you are showcasing it. I, I'm thinking of uh, the Bernstein uh, Candide, mm. for example. Mm-hmm. You know, Candide based on Voltaire's work, and of course, that's that's brimming with Voltaire's perspective mm-hmm. on uh, on on the world. And and I remember at the the interval, 
in that performance talking to a seminary professor who was saying, you know, I, I, I love the performance, but, but I, I hate the, the meaning, mm-hmm. the message mm-hmm. of this thing. But of course, you're regularly engaging with things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious about the thought process that goes into it, because I think it might be surprising to people um, in, in a positive way to see, you know, a Christian engaging meaningfully with all these different kinds of, of music with different meanings? Well, I mean, uh, being music director of a symphony orchestra is roughly analogous to being a, a curator of a museum. Mm. Um, it's my responsibility to to make available to the public the, the broadest array of great works of art that I can get my hands on. Um, and uh, that's how I approach programming every season and multiple seasons and, you know, 10 years out. Um, This is what's in my head. So that's, first of all, my responsibility. And it's not something that I can allow some sort of, you know, Christian bias into. Sure. Um, Having said that, when I come to a work of art that is, um, that is, I don't know, offensive to some people, I mean, some people find the Christian stuff offensive, you mm-hmm. know, and that's just what it is. So, but then, you know, we'll turn around and we'll do Hindustani music or right. something, you know, it's like, right. you know, like just, just wait a minute and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, I think about, uh, I, you know, years ago I was teaching a class on Christianity and art at the New York school of the Bible. And, um, it was, this was in the 90s, and it was the era era of Robert Maplethorpe and Andres Serrano mm-hmm. and the big NEA controversies, uh, people wanting to cut funding to the NEA because there were galleries uh, that were funded that decided to show, uh, for instance, Serrano's Piss Christ, which mm-hmm. is a crucifix in a jar of urine. Right. And I remember we had a, a really great session one evening just focusing on that work you know and and asking why an artist would you know put a crucifix in a jar of urine um and how how decadent that is and how you know just just sacrilegious and you know whatever you want to call it and it's interesting as we're christians we're talking about this and we come out on the other end of it it's like well what does this teach us about the culture in which we live. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity for us. We're not, we're not here to set ourselves against the culture. We're here to, to follow Christ in the midst of the culture, to be leaven in this big lump of dough. And, and so us reacting against this, even, yeah, we can say we don't agree with it. We can have conversations with people about why we don't agree with it. But we can also say, well, what, what happened to Andres Serrano that he wanted to do this? What is, was he actually trying to say? Is it a personal message? Is it a cultural message? And if it's a cultural message, then what does it teach us about the, 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 the people to whom we are to be ministering? Right, right. I mean, that, uh, I'll try to ask myself, who hurt Voltaire? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, perhaps, I'll develop some... Some sympathy, but right. but no, I think you make a good point. Um, Francis Schaeffer, yes. you know, famously engaged with um, contemporary art uh, 
in order to better understand the culture that created it, that gave birth to it. And, and, and I think helped to model a different way of reacting to things we don't sympathize with in, in the sense that, um, you do start asking questions about where does this come from and, and what can it teach me about the world that I live in? And, and, uh, and that can be helpful. I think not only as a, as a Christian navigating, uh, a very complex and, and, uh, not always hospitable world, mm-hmm. but also it can be helpful to us as just good critics of culture, as people who want to think better about the world that we live in. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, one of those iron sharpening iron things in a, in a, new, in a strange way, but, mm-hmm. but, um, this engagement can be really helpful. And I, th- I think that's borne out in the programming that you do in the selections that you make, because, you know, I said earlier that, you know, I know that you program things that you're not necessarily in sympathy with like the quote unquote message of it all, but you don't perform those things as if you're trying to undermine the message. Mm-hmm. Like you, you honor them mm-hmm. and, and respect them. I, I think maybe with that curatorial yeah. perspective, you know, to do justice to these things that they need to be heard and, and engaged with. Yeah. And I think that's not a bad uh, example for, for all of us these days to aspire to, to be able to, to actually give a hearing to many different perspectives and engage with them rather than, uh, as it were, to, to pull the plug and, and refuse to hear the music. Well, it requires you to live out your faith, I would say, a little more fully mm. than you might otherwise, you know, to, to come in contact with things that make you uncomfortable. But you know what you believe. Yeah. You, more importantly, you know in whom you believe. And, and that is your guiding light. And you can live, you can live against it uh, in the sense of like not, not disrespecting it or whatever, but you can see yourself as engaging with it and yet separate from it. Mm. I think that's a good way to segue into our conversation about Crescendo North America because the artists that you support in crescendo and engage with are professionals working in the world Mm -hmm. who have uh, Christian commitments, Christian faith, but they are living that faith out in the, the professional environment of the arts Mm -hmm. and all of the, the both advantages and disadvantages that, that we've talked about apply in those situations. So maybe just tell us a little bit about, crescendo as a global organization and how you first got involved with it? Well, I've had kind of a parallel career in professional music making and ministry for well over 20 years now. Um, And I must have been, I think it was 2010 was the first time that I worked with this um, ministry in Europe called crescendo. Um, Crescendo was founded in 1985 by, uh, in Basel, Switzerland, by a man named Beat Rink and his wife, Irie. Um, he is Swiss and she is Finnish. And um, 
and they, you know, just had a heart for ministering to artists. Uh, Irie's a dancer. Bayat is a, a poet, um, a theologian. He's an ordained reform minister. Um, and, and they, they, they started an arts ministry, a campus ministry through Campus Crusade for Christ uh, in Basel uh, in the mid 80s. And it, it became more focused on music. And then it jumped from the student world into the professional world. And it's grown over the last three decades, sort of country by country in Europe. Um, and the, the idea is that we're supporting um, Christians, Christ, professional Christian uh, uh, classical and jazz musicians in their vocation. And especially in Europe, if you're a Christian and you're sitting in an orchestra, a very good chance you're the only one, you know, um, opera singer, uh, jazz musician. And so uh, your church generally won't understand you either as an artist or as a Christian in the arts. It's not like you're going to get, you know, support. Of course you ha you get support as a, as, as a Christian in your, in, in your church, you know, just as a, as a member of your congregation, but specifically within a very challenging uh, professional environment. Um, where do you go? Who do you talk to? You know, how can you, how can you find somebody with that can relate to your challenges? Because let's face it, the arts are generally hostile to Christianity. Um, and yeah, well, and and to be fair, artistic professions are difficult to begin with, mm -hmm. right? Just just by their very nature, they right. they make teaching seem stable and highly remunerative. Um, so there's already that difficulty, and then to add into it this other dimension of trying to live faithfully mm -hmm. in in that fraught environment, I I think is is uh, not something that could be easily related to by people who haven't experienced it. That's right. So Crescendo grew, um, and it was, I call it chasing the Holy Spirit, because uh, it's, it's like where, where the Spirit is moving, that's where, that's where we want to be. We don't want to try to force anything at all. Um, and it generally, generally there's a spark in a particular place, among a group of people, and and each crescendo chapter, we call them hubs. Um, each one is defined more or less by the giftings of the people that are there. So, therefore, crescendo France is very different from crescendo Finland. And who knew that Leipzig would be the jazz hub? Hmm. That's Bach's hometown, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. But it is because the people who are there in Leipzig. Um, you know, these, the Christians who were there, they really embraced this and, and grew a, a fellowship out of it there. And um, the first time I experienced Crescendo was as part of uh, a summer institute in Hungary. Uh, in 2010 was the first time I went. And um, I, was, I was really struck with the way that these people minister. Because, you know, in this in the Summer Institute, half the people there are not Christians. Um, 
And yet there's this vibrant, spiritual vibrancy that's there. And it's an open-handed invitation to people to come make music with us, eat with us, drink with us. And as we're going, we'll share our lives and we share our faith. And people come to Christ. They just do. 30 years ago, we might have called this lifestyle evangelism. Uh, but it works. And it works particularly well in the arts because there's no agenda um, there. Um, yes, of course, we want to share our faith, but we're looking for the organic way to do that out of building relationships. And there's a, an emotional bond that happens when people make music together. So that opens a door for, for a deeper conversation because you're engaging already with things that are have a, a, at least a spirituality to it in the music that we're playing. So, um, so it becomes more organic uh, in the way that we share our lives. So there's this vibrant global organization, but it really surprised me to discover that Crescendo did not have a presence in North America. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that, that you have really helped to change. As, as the leader of Crescendo North America, you have been helping to establish these hubs here. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to, to see a little bit, you know, like I've, I've been to meetings and talked to some of the people involved and, and uh, have followed the progress of it. And it's very exciting to see these hubs develop and the relationships being formed all over this country. Yeah. Yeah. It's really been great. I mean, it was a little, about three and a half years ago at this summer Institute in Hungary, um, the, the usual thing that has happened over the last 30 years, when any Americans go over to work with Crescendo, the question always is, well, why is there nothing like this in America? Um, cause there's not, um, and I asked the same question and um, we were, there were a group of about 20 Americans that were there at the Summer Institute and actually it was student initiated this, you know, let's get together and talk about, you know, what this might look like in the U.S. and, and uh, let's, uh, let's pray about it. And we got together two or three times over the course of the couple of weeks we were there together. And what was evident to everybody at the end of that, except for me, was that I would be the one to lead it. My wife was there. She got the message. But, you know, <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was, the, that was the fall of 2019. I was basically deputized to, to start initiating this. And, and then came the pandemic. And um, it was a big surprise, a wonderful surprise to me was that in that time when we all were were sequestering ourselves, I would go down to our living room, turn on the fireplace, open up my wife's laptop, and have six or seven conversations a day over Zoom with people I'd never met, wonderful musicians who love Jesus all over, not just the U.S., but Canada too, all over the continent. And this is how it just started, Crescendo North America. Like, you know, God was able to use that terrible time to this wonderful end. 
And uh, it's not just due to me. I'm not saying that, but uh, you know, these conversations started going and they, and then people in different cities got excited. And now we've got 15 hubs in North America, mm-hmm. 15 different cities where we have crescendo chapters. And some of them are, you know, some of them are still fledgling, but some of them are like really full blown, you know, go figure Dallas is like got 140 people already. (laughs) But (laughs) There's so many Christians down there, whereas Montreal, they're having a rough time. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not many Christians. What's striking to me is obviously members of these hubs have uh, a support network Mm -hmm. once they get involved. and, And now there's, there's some spiritual nurturing that happens and as you come together and, and can kind of talk through your common experiences and and how you've applied your faith to them. But these hubs also collaborate together and work together mm-hmm. to serve and have put on concerts and done all sorts of interesting things to connect with their communities. Yeah. Yeah, and there's always a spiritual element to it. It's not never just concerts for the sake of concerts. It's uh, like Seattle Hub just gave a presentation a couple of weeks ago, and it was all centered on one composer, um, and who has wrote a lot of sacred music, and the music wasn't very well known, and so they and they it was actually a Spanish composer from the from the 19th century, and they had a, a, a Spanish expert that came in and talked about it, but then they had readings, uh, spiritual readings in between each of the pieces that were performed. Uh, You know, it was very prayerful. And, uh, you know, it was just a beautiful event. And this is like a typical crescendo event, where, you know, you create an opening for people to explore uh, Christianity a little deeper through the music. One of our Hub leaders in in Boston, uh, Delvin Case, has a whole organization that he started years ago called Deus Ex Musica, Hmm. God in the Music. And he's been exploring scripture through music and commissioning new works. um, Like he'll do a, he'll pick one psalm and have five composers write uh, write set that same psalm to music and present it and have them talk about how it and how different their interpretations of the psalms are musically and it's it's a way to engage with scripture through the music it's really just kind of fascinating to see you know how people live out their faith yeah i think there's been an explosion of creativity and in, in mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to work together to do these things and i know that there's even been uh, cross-pollination and inspiration from one hub to another as Absolutely. you see things happening. So it's exciting. There's there's a, a description of Crescendo that you shared with me that I, I just want to p- share because although we've talked about some of this, there's, there, there's something right at the end, I think, that captures this really well. So uh, it says, Crescendo is a global network of professional classical and jazz musicians who are Christians. The purpose of Crescendo is to support musicians spiritually in their vocation. In fellowship, we also desire to challenge one another to live out our lives more fully in Christ among our peers. We seek to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in order to further the kingdom of God as followers of Jesus and as artists engaging with and positively influencing culture. And I think that last part there really captures what you're describing, following the Holy Spirit's leading to further the kingdom of God, engaging with the culture and influencing it positively. 
which is something that in all of the arts I've always admired when Christians recognize that that the gifts that we've been given are an opportunity to make a positive contribution, not just to inform our criticism of the world around us, but to actually contribute something of value to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that, you know, the church historically has done really well at some points and then not so well. At sure. other points, this idea that we can be leaven in our society, the idea of, you know, creating public works of art, architecture, things for the good of the community, and that it points to God just by doing that. You know, you don't have to, you know, have some sort of byline, tagline to it that, that, that you know, drives home the point. Like, allow the Holy Spirit to do some work right. through, the, right. through, the, through the gifts that he's given. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I appreciate you sharing this with us because I think certainly at our church, a lot of people know you primarily as the maestro of the symphony and don't really know about this, like you say, this parallel life of ministry that has kind of culminated in Crescendo. And so I'm really pleased to be able to share that aspect with people. A crescendo is a um, ministry that you can support. If you go to the website, crescendonorthamerica.org, you can find out more information about that. David, you are also, in addition to talking with me now, working on the Hearing the Music Season 2 podcast, you're also preparing for a pretty big concert that's just around the corner, which Mm. is uh, coming up on the 25th of February, Mm -hmm. the Shostakovich uh, Symphony Number no. Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us just a, a little bit about your preparation for that. Oh, it's been eight months of preparation. It's called the Leningrad. So Shostakovich. It was written in 1941 during the siege of Leningrad, which was mm. the longest siege in the history of the world. Almost 900 days. It was the Nazis that uh, that surrounded Leningrad, and there were two and a half million people that were trapped, and a million one one and a half million of those people died during the course of those three years. And um, and Shostakovich wrote this piece as an encouragement to his fellow Leningraders in the midst of the struggle. It's, it's, it's a beautiful piece. It's a, it's a powerful piece. Um, and, uh, and we're having a music historian, Joseph Horowitz, is coming to town. Um, Joe's been here several times before, but he is really America's music historian, literally wrote the book Classical Music in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll be helping me, you know, even mid-concert to uh, to sort of take apart this piece and help people understand, you know, how Shostakovich was uh, composing this piece um, to support his fellow uh, Leningraders. Um, and it's and Joe's actually going to be here for about ten days because we're engaging with students at SDSU and USD around this. Our string quartet is going to be traveling to both of those universities and playing. Shostakovich's um, eighth string quartet uh, there on campus, and Joe will be giving talks about it. And so, you know, this is a, you know, the deeper mission of the symphony is to, you know, like really reach into the community and, and uh, be of value in, in whatever way we can. Yeah, well, that concert is coming up on the 25th. If you're listening to this now, you can actually go and experience this piece. Mm-hmm. And not only 
be exposed to the greatness of the music, but also some insight into the history. And I think it's a, a great opportunity for anyone who hasn't experienced a symphony concert yet to get in on one of these special editions, as it were, that uh, really open up the the depths of the music to you. Well, hold on to your hats because this is, I mean, well, pro- the orchestra is huge. It's like 100, 100 people on stage. And uh, it's uh, it's a very very powerful piece. So if if you haven't experienced the symphony, this is uh, this is a full immersion, like you know, peel the paint off the walls kind of piece. Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking forward to it, David. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you again, and I, I just so pleased. We'll continue to to watch with awe and support with prayer your work with Crescendo North America. That is very, very much appreciated. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If our conversation has sparked your interest and you'd like to experience one of David's concerts, the season information is online at sdsymphony.org. You can also keep up with David's work at deltadavidgeyer.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.